Well, if you were to ask the average person walking down the street what love is, uh, you would get all kinds of different answers. You ask a different person, you get a different answer. Some people will tell you that it's uh, a great emotion, it's the best of all emotions. Some people will tell you that it's being tolerant of other views, is being loving. Some people will tell you, uh, immediately go to the physical aspect of love. Uh, even our songs have seemed to not agree on what love is. You've got one song that says love will keep us alive. You've got another song that says love hurts. You've got one song that says love is a rose. You've got another song that says love stinks. You've got totally different views, not only in our music, but also in our culture of what true love is. So how refreshing it is when we turn to the scriptures and find a song there that tells us exactly what love is. And the love that is most often heard on the radio is that of a romantic sort. So when we turn in the scriptures and we see a song there, the only song that the Bible ever plays about the issue of romantic love, you see no inconsistencies but one true theme about what love is. Let's uh, look today in Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And this is our last message in this series on the greatest of songs, love being the greatest of songs. We've seen Solomon and his young bride begin their relationship, being attracted to one another through character. We've seen them grow in, in depth of their relationship before they were married, not focusing on the physical, but waiting until marriage for that. And then once marriage comes, you know, they dive right into the physical with all their heart. And we see the issue of conflict, we see the issue of reconciliation. Last week we looked at how important it is to keep that love alive, to keep that romance going, so that it's not just two people bored with each other until they die, but actually enjoying the marriage relationship. But today as we end the series, and as the book ends here in chapter 8, it focuses on what you might say is the very essence of what true romantic love is to focus on. We're going to start in verse 5. <clears throat> we left off last week, verse 4. We'll start in verse 5. And the daughters of Jerusalem, or the ladies of Jerusalem, ask a question. In verse 5 they ask, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, I don't know if you remember, but there's really not any wilderness described here in the context of this book. And so I'm, in the, with the figurative language that runs all throughout this, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of take this like a Jew would think about coming out of the wilderness. To come out of the wilderness in a Jew's mind would represent what happened in the Exodus. You remember Charlton Heston? The great... Exodus was when the Jews came out of a period of wandering and bondage in the wilderness into the promised land of blessing. And so to come out of the wilderness, it represents coming out of a hard time into a time of, of blessing. And notice as they're coming out of this wilderness, they are pictured leaning on her beloved. So even though there's been a past difficulties, if that's what the text means, and I think it is, of wilderness... Uh, even though there's past difficulties, you still see the element of romance. You still see the element of attraction and uh, of, of romance happening here as, they, as she leans on him. Uh, the uh, video 
is a great example of that. Kathy and I saw another great example of this when we went to a restaurant several weeks ago. These uh, two elderly ladies sat down beside us at the table next to us, and we overheard the conversation as they were ta telling a waiter, be sure and usher our husbands here to this table. They're going to be coming in in a few minutes. They're parking the car. And he says, well, how do we know your husbands? And they say, well, just look for the two best-looking guys and send them over here. And so uh, the waiter, you know, I mean, sure, he's going to be able to figure that out. So he goes, and in a few minutes, these two elderly men come and sit down with their wives, but without the waiter. And she says, well, how did you find us? Did the waiter not show you? And he said, oh, no, we just look for the two best-looking girls in here. And I thought that was so neat because they hadn't heard one another make that joke. He was out parking the car when she said it. And yet they were so attuned to one another that even in the, the ripe old age of who knows how old they were, I don't want to say it because I don't want anybody here that's that old, I feel bad. But they've been married for a long time. And there's still that element of fun and romance happening. It's not just old, you know, uh, cold mashed potatoes. There's real romance and spark happening still after all those years. You know, I don't know of any marriages that don't want that kind of a, of a relationship, even after years and years of marriage. And I think that's what we see here with Solomon, is we see that their marriage has matured and developed and progressed along some point. But what is it that causes marriage for that to happen? For there to be coming out of the wilderness and still actually being civil towards one another. Well, let's continue and we'll see. Uh, halfway through verse 5, where we stopped, she says to Solomon, Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. It's kind of an obscure verse. Uh, the apple tree all throughout our song here has represented, either an apple or apple tree, has represented their love in some form or fashion. So there's no sense to take any different here. Uh, the apple tree there, uh, what's that little song, uh, don't sit under the apple tree but anybody else but me? Am I just making that up or is that really a song simply? Okay, good. It was in, ringing in my head this week and I thought, you know, that's kind of neat because we've still got that same, that same romantic idea in that song of sitting under the apple tree, representing love and romance that they had. Uh, but she says, under this apple tree, or under the umbrella of our love, you might say, I awakened you. And the word here, awakened, we've heard several times, as we've been told, do not arouse or awaken love till it's time. It's referring to their sexual relationship. And so we're saying, she says, underneath the umbrella, or in the context of our love, I awakened you. And then she gives the example of his mother, Bathsheba, uh, there, your, there your mother was in labor with you, meaning under the apple tree. So this, I mean, you know, the queen of Israel is not going to give birth under an apple tree. All right, Bathsheba didn't have Solomon under an apple tree. This is a figure of speech saying in the same way that Bathsheba conceived uh, and gave birth here to you. In other words, the love that was in the relationship of your parents that enabled them to conceive and you to give birth. That's the same kind of love we have under this apple tree as I awaken you. But I think she's using this idea of labor not merely to allude to the, the sexual aspect of it, but also because under that apple tree is labor. There is work and there is hard work. 
in the marriage relationship. And I think that is really the emphasis of repeating this twice. There your mother was in labor, literally in travail with you. There she was in labor and gave birth to you. Under love, under the apple tree, there is labor. There is pain. There is hard work. You know, many of us have felt the ache, who are married, have felt the ache of being apart from a spouse and knowing the, the pain of, of the longing of not being with them, being out of town or, or some kind of a falling out or whatever. Uh, you know the ache that there is in being misunderstood in a conflict. And after a while, the water just gets so muddy that, that there's no way that you can, in that moment, you know, pull back and say, all right, let's get it straight. The water is just so muddy, the frustration that comes. And they have had uh, their share, Solomon and his wife, of frustration. We saw the insecurity even before they were married, the little foxes they wanted to catch before they were married, after they're married, the selfish indifference. And they're coming out of that wilderness, still romantic, with the, the idea of, again, affirming that underneath the apple tree is difficulty. It's hard work. Every marriage is like that. And because there's pain, I think now she says in verse 6, because there is such difficulty, she makes a request of Solomon. And it is my opinion that there is not a married couple in existence that should not make this same request. In verse 6, she says, put me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm. Now, this seal is not the arctic animal, okay, that wallows around. That's not the seal. The seal that they're talking about here is a, like a signet ring. And uh, Solomon, being a king, would definitely have one of these. It was like what our notary publics use today when they stamp on something. You've got that impression in the paper that shows the official seal. It, it carries authority. It's uh, like a and it has their name on it. That's what a, a ring was. When a king would give a servant his, his signet ring, the servant was essentially given a credit card to do whatever he wanted to do in the name of the king. It would be stamped in wax or something on a letter or whatnot, but it was a seal of ownership. It was a seal of authority. And to be held over the heart like a seal means that, that that heart is possessed by, some, by somebody. It's owned by somebody. And that there, if it's sealed, that there is nothing that, that can get into that heart. It's closed. It's sealed, except for the owner. It can't be opened without authorization. Seal on the heart, but also a seal on the arm. Uh, you might picture this like a tattoo here. Okay, we've got a brother here that has mom on his, on his shoulder. And this shows, obviously, his deep devotion, his permanent devotion to his mother. Because there's, there it is, like a seal on the arm. He's devoted to his mom. In the same sense, she's saying, let me be like a seal on your arm. Both externally, I want you to say, uh, to be devoted to me in what you say, what you do, and also internally in your heart. Let me be a seal, that there be nobody else that invades. Now, why such a request? Why is she making such a strong request for this exclusivism? 
We finish verse 6 about halfway through. She says, and she explains why. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. It's interesting here, the way Hebrew poetry, which this is, is written, are always in parallelisms, usually one line or repeat the next line to emphasize it. And that's what happens here. Love is as strong as death, jealousy severe as Sheol. Death and Sheol are the same thing. Sheol means the grave. And so why is jealousy or love that strong or severe? I'll tell you why. Because when death or Sheol get a hold of somebody, they don't give them back. It's a permanent possession. Love is that strong too. And here, love is coupled with jealousy. Isn't that interesting? I heard a cute story about uh, Adam and Eve. Obviously, it's false, but it's cute. Uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and Adam come, comes home late one night, and Eve says, I think you've been seeing other women. You've been coming home late. And Adam says, Eve, there are no other women. You're exaggerating. And so that night, uh, she is wakened up in the middle of the night of Adam being poked on the, or he is awakened with her poking on his chest. And he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm counting ribs. <laughs> now that's not the kind of jealousy that is spoken of here. We're not talking about an insecure, uh, worried lack of trust. That is a a form of jealousy, no doubt, but that is sin. That is not the kind of jealousy to be in a marriage. The kind of jealousy we're talking about here is described as a flash of fire. In fact, its source, we're told, is the Lord. Well, this can't be an unhealthy jealousy. You know, we're told in the Scriptures not to have any other God before God because He is a jealous God. That doesn't mean God is insecure. It means that he so desires what is right. He says, I don't want you to worship any other God because I'm the only true God. I am zealous. I am jealous for you to do what is right, to worship only me and nobody else. That's the exact same thing that is being taught here. A seal over the heart means exclusivism. There should be no rivals. Put me and me alone as the seal over your heart because jealousy, the, the healthy jealousy, that accepts no rivals is the very same love and jealousy that the Lord has for His people. It is a jealousy that is helpful. I remember an old Mac Davis song uh, called Stuck on Music. Remember that song? Stuck on music from the moment. Kind of an Elvis uh, would be or wannabe. But there's the line in that song where he says, uh, and I can't remember the melody so I'll just tell you the words. He says, so I bought myself a guitar and I wrote me a little song and I changed the name to fit my latest flame and that sucker never came out wrong. The thought being his latest flame, that's what stuck out to me. When I read this verse about the flame of the Lord and the flame in their relationship, I thought about that Mac Davis song and how we often will talk about our latest flame or our old flame or our newest flame with the clear implication that at some point that flame died out. That it's no longer there. I've got a new flame now. With the flame of love being temporary. And yet that is not what you see here. 
This is a love that is so powerful, a flame that is so powerful, it will never be extinguished uh, because obviously it's from the Lord. We're given an example here. Verse 7, how strong is this flame, this devotion? How strong is the seal over your heart supposed to be? Verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. It is a torch that cannot be put out by many waters or by rivers. It's a waterproof torch. It was over 17 years ago. There was a man named uh, Charlie Weedmeyer. The 30-year-old high school football coach was given one year to live uh, after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a very uh, debilitating uh uh, paralyzing disease. Eventually you just, uh, well, you die. He was given one year to live, but he lasted seven. And the reason is because of his wife, Lucy. Like I said, he was a high school football coach. After he couldn't uh, walk any longer, she would drive him up and down the uh, sidelines in a golf cart. After he could no longer talk, she would read his lips and give the instructions to the team. The very last year that he lived and coached, they went to state finals, and he was on 24-hour life support. But the love of his wife and hanging in there, even through hard times, is what caused him to persevere. Listen, she wrote a book, and she says this in her book. She says, I think we communicate and understand each other better today than we ever did. While I've learned to read Charlie's lips, I find I often don't have to. His eyes almost always tell me exactly how he feels, and his eyebrows punctuate those feelings as they bounce up and down or as I watch his forehead furrow into a wrinkle. If you don't think someone in difficult circumstances can find happiness and contentment, if you doubt the contagious quality of joy, well, you've never seen my Charlie smile. To me, this couple demonstrates exactly what this text is teaching. And here is a great principle. That is that the power of love's devotion is stronger than the pain of love's defeats. The power of love's devotion is stronger than the pain of love's defeats. Why? Because love is a decision. It's not an emotion. If you choose to love, it doesn't matter what happens. It's a choice you make. And ultimately, that choice, that strength is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because he is that, that source of that flame that cannot be put out. Many waters, many forces are going to come against that, that flame. You have a wilderness experience. You've got every bit the pain of labor under an apple tree emotionally in a marriage. And yet we're told... It can't be put out because the Lord is the source of that strength. So how important it is for you to place your faith, first of all, in Jesus Christ. You do not have the strength within yourself to stay faithful in a marriage uh, without being a Christian. Now, I'm not saying that unbelievers don't live long, happy lives. I think a lot of times the Lord is very gracious to people and gives them circumstances that enable them to deal with issues. But by and large, you might call it a proverb, it is a general truth, 
that apart from the strength of the Lord, a marriage days, a marriage's days are numbered. And even in a marriage where people are Christian, without exception, without exception, and I dare you to show me an exception, the reason that two believers who have all the tools necessary do not stay married is because one or both of those spouses has put self as a higher priority than their spouse and their God, without exception. And that is why I think the only time in this whole book of the Song of Songs the Lord's name is mentioned is right here, speaking on the emphasis of commitment. Put me like a seal over your heart, strengthened by Almighty God. That is the only way that it will ever last. Here's something else about a true love. Halfway through verse 7. Look at this. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Why? Why would it be despised? Because you can't buy it. Yes, I think that everybody knows you can't buy love. But a deeper a deeper explanation of that uh, platitude is you can't buy love. The reason is because love that is true is free. It's given. It is not taken. It is not earned. It is given. So here's a great principle. A love that is pleasing gives freely without conditions. Gives freely without conditions. If it's true that a love uh, that is bought is despised, then it is also true that a love that gives freely is not despised, but rather is cherished and it lasts. There's a permanence to it. And now we're given a, a great little illustration here of how, at least on the side of uh, the woman, we know in the book of Proverbs, as uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs, he speaks often of my father teaching me wisdom. He's speaking of King David teaching him wisdom. So we know where Solomon got his part of wisdom from teaching from his daddy David and from the Lord. But where did his wife get it? And this is much more, I guess, toward the reality side. None of us are sons of kings. How do the normal people get raised with this kind of a morality, this kind of a commitment? Well, she speaks in verse 8 of what her brothers say. And I know it's the brothers here in a few verses. Well, in hindsight, we can tell. But look at what the brothers say about Solomon's wife when she was a little girl. She said, we have, verse 8, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we shall build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door... We shall barricade her with planks of cedar. So here you see the Solomon's wife's family being very involved from a very early age. Notice she says she's called a little sister and she is physically not yet developed, we're told. She's very little. Uh, the brothers come together and they have a conversation. What shall we do? for our sister in the day she's spoken for. In other words, what shall we do to prepare her for marriage? To get her ready. So she'll be ready for marriage. What shall we do? And they say, if she's a wall, we'll reward her. Uh, we'll give her, we'll build her a battlement of silver. A wall, the idea there is 
moral. People are kept out. We saw the wall used uh, on their wedding night. Remember, she was called a walled garden. It was the, the intruders are kept out. She's moral. So if she's moral, they say, we'll encourage her. We'll reward her. But if she is a door, she lets people in. If she is immoral, what will we do? We'll discourage her. We'll uh, barricade her with planks of cedar. In other words, she's raised in a family that teaches her right and wrong. And this goes a great distance in preparing a child to make those important moral decisions that they will have to make eventually to discourage immorality and to greatly encourage and even reward morality. This is the kind of upbringing she had. And yet I want to tell you something, and I'm sure that you've figured this out by now, but just in case you might need a reminder. It doesn't matter what a great job your parents did. They may, you may have had a great family like she did. It doesn't matter what a sorry job your parents did. They may have not taught you right and wrong. You may have grown up with immorality all around you, even in your own home. But ultimately, you are responsible for the decisions that you make. You cannot blame immoral decisions that you make on your parents. And they can have a great influence. But ultimately, it is up to you. And notice what she has chosen. Verse 10. What did she choose? She chose, I was a wall. She was moral. She chose to do it right. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. She says, I've chosen morality. I've chosen to do it right, even when I became developed. Remember back in verse 8, she, she had no breasts, and now in verse 10, her breasts are like towers. So even now when she's developed... She still has chosen morality. And the picture there is a very good one. You've got a city with towers. And what happens when you've got a wall around a city? You can see the towers, but you can't get to them. The wall keeps them out, keeps out the intruders. But then she says, then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Walls are for wars. And if there's no war, then there's no need for the wall. And the towers are accessible. I think here she's talking about the time that she gets married to Solomon because she says it became in his eyes as one who finds peace. There's no need now for the wall. And now the towers are accessible. And she uses the word peace there. Many of you know uh, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which sounds a lot like Solomon's name in Hebrew. In fact, Solomon's name is the very next word. So I take it that she's saying that even though I grew up moral, or not even though, but she says, I chose morality. And it was morality that caused Solomon to take notice of me. And now she talks about the wall coming down, the peace, verse 11 and 12, gets even more descriptive. She says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman and trusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My very own vineyard is at my disposal, the thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. Now there's a kind of a cultural issue here that's happening that we as Americans who don't grow vineyards don't know about. But uh, what a king would do, and Solomon had a vineyard, we're told here, entrusted it to caretakers, and what he would do when he would entrust it to caretakers is they would take care of it, and the produce from that they would pay to Solomon. And here's a thousand shekels. But then he would give the caretakers who worked it for him that year 20% or 200 shekels. 
And evidently, this uh, vineyard was, the caretakers of this vineyard were the brothers of Solomon's wife. You remember back in chapter 1, where was it that she was working? In a vineyard. What did she compare her body to, herself? A vineyard. That's exactly what she does here. She talks about the vineyard that, that was uh, Solomon owned and that they were working in. And then she says, my very own vineyard, speaking of herself, her body, is at my disposal. In other words, I give it to who I want to. Now, Solomon would have paid for that vineyard. But, but uh, she says, the thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. In other words, in a joking way, she says, keep, keep the money that you would give for a vineyard. Why? It goes right back to the idea that if a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. You can't buy it. It's given freely. She says, my love, my life, I give to you freely. It's at my disposal. All she's asking here uh, is that the brothers, those who have taken care of her, taken care of its fruit, remember the brothers talked about protecting her morality, that those who have cared for that vineyard, Solomon was to remember them. So we see that even back at the beginning of the relationship, there was a giving there. She gave of herself. It's not something you earn. And the last two verses of this whole book focus again on one of the most essential elements of making a marriage last, and that is giving. Look at the last two verses, and I'm going to read it in the NIV. He says, Solomon says to her, You who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. Then she says in response, Come away, my lover, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. So what is each one of them saying? Again, in the context of the giving here, um, he is essentially wanting to meet one of her greatest needs, as is every woman, and as communication says, let me hear your voice. She is wanting to meet in response to one of the greatest needs of a man, and that is sexual intimacy. She says, uh, be like a gazelle on the mountains of spices. We've seen that phrase before referring to their sexual relationship. So you see, each of them as the book ends, giving to each other. And yet it's sad to me, and even though the book is over, the application for this song is not because the life of Solomon, the song of Solomon is not the end of Solomon's life. If you're familiar with the way Solomon's life went after this point of incredible faithfulness, of incredible prosperity for Israel, you can only hang your head and go, Solomon, let me read to you from 1 Kings 11. You can look at the screen. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You just want to go, man, Solomon, you wrote the book on how to do it right here in the Song of Songs. And she made that request, put me like a seal over your heart. She knew the temptations of a king was to gather a bunch of concubines. She saw it in Solomon's father. David had eight or ten. He didn't have a thousand of them like Solomon ended up doing. And yet it's, it's so interesting to me that Solomon, who wrote the book on doing marriage right, 
when it came, when push came to shove, he laid an egg in this area. You remember also in the book of Kings when Solomon was given his wisdom? Remember God came to him and said, ask me whatever you want. Solomon says, I'm young, give me wisdom to govern this great nation. And God says, all right, you've got it. You are now wise. And then after that, God says, but make sure you also stay obedient. The thought being, you can know everything to say. You can memorize the Song of Solomon and think that you're applying it by memory, by having the wisdom in your marriage. But there is a big difference between words and will, your will to do it. And so we get a principle from the life of Solomon that is a difficult one. And that is that words can't replace will when commitment is tested. You cannot avoid that reality. Words can't replace the will. The very end of Solomon's life, I think he figured this out. If you're in the text, Song of Solomon, look back one book, the book right before it. In fact, the two verses right before the Song of Solomon begins. Ecclesiastes is a book Solomon wrote. The very end of the book, he makes a conclusion. Ecclesiastes talks about how he searched high and low for meaning in life. And I guess he figured, having written the Song of Solomon, that if one marriage is great, a thousand will be even greater. And he finds that that too, he says in the early part of the book, is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It doesn't satisfy. And here in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, right before the Song of Solomon starts, it's, he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In other words, what you sow is what you're going to reap. So Solomon says, I've done it. I've learned the hard way. Have a relationship with God in the days that you're young so that at the end of your life you won't look back with regret. And I want to tell you something else. It doesn't matter if you're sitting here today as a 75-year-old man like Abraham was when he trusted in the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're sitting here today as an 80-year-old man or woman like Moses was when he finally began to... his purpose for God's life began in his life. Uh, there, are, there is always today, never a promise for tomorrow, but always availability today. For you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, that you can do that by simply believing and transferring your trust from yourself and your own good works to what Jesus did when He paid for all your sins when He died on the cross. And you are a Christian at that point. And you, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And you have, at that moment, all the tools, potentially, that you need to have a great marriage. I remember uh, Tom Landry, when he was coach of the Cowboys, was asked a question one time. They, they asked him, Coach, of your opinion, which of the players have the potential to go all pro? And he immediately said, he said, all of them. He said, we wouldn't hire anybody if they couldn't go all pro. He said, well, how come they don't? He said, the difference between those who don't go all pro and those who do is the ones who don't, don't want it badly enough. Says they've all got the tools, but they don't want to pay the price to go all pro. And so I say this to you. 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and if your spouse has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, my friend, you have all the tools you need to have the Song of Solomon in your life. I'm telling you. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. They had their wilderness experiences just like you and I do. But you have the tools to make it work. And we don't need to be like Solomon, who though he had all the answers, and gave all the answers, did not apply those answers to his own life, and ended up cratering in this area. I recently tried a, a way to get across the importance of commitment in marriage. There was a couple that came to me for premarital counseling uh, several months back. And I handcuffed them together for a whole day. They came in. I said, all right, close your eyes. They closed their eyes. They, they opened their eyes and they had handcuffs on for a whole day. Now, I, they were able to go to the bathroom and stuff like that separately. They had a key for that. But the emphasis was, you're going to go through the whole day now and you're going to realize what it's like of all the, the difficulties. Regardless, you have to be together. And uh, here's a picture. Jerry and Sanja, see, they're cooking, and they got the handcuffs on. Now, I bet that was tough. They came back the next week, and I said, can you give me any uh, little nuggets from that day together? And I want you to listen to what they told me. I wrote down what they said, because I felt like it was very insightful. They said, there is no separation, even at times when it's very inconvenient, and you feel you could accomplish more alone. They also said, everything you do affects the other person. Isn't that true? Not just with handcuffs, but in a marriage relationship. What you do affects the other person. They also said that you're required to serve one another. Okay? you got a hand handcuffed. You've got to hold a cup for one to pour. You've got to open doors for one another. Uh, you've got to serve one another. If you're cuffed together in marriage, the same way. There's got to be a reciprocal kind of serving going on. Just like we saw here at the end of the Song of Song, she is trying to meet his need, uh, he's trying to meet her need, and they're working together. It's not, all right, you meet my needs. It's how can I meet yours. They also said uh, that you have to communicate your intent and your actions are essential. Jerry said at one point he forgot they were attached and he almost pulled her arm out of socket because he started going off someplace. You've got to communicate your intentions for the other person. And finally, this was what Sanja said, and I thought this was wonderful. She said, holding hands made the bonds more fun. That is exactly right. To keep the romance alive, to be doubled with that commitment that you have. It doesn't have to be an old dry bone that you've got to chew on the rest of your life. It can actually be fun. And... And I'm here to tell you, Kathy and I have almost been married about 10 years now. So the, the honeymoon is, is gone as far as that, that period of time. The seven-year itch is gone and all that other stuff that goes on with it. And I'm telling you, it is tough. But if there are two people who, by the grace of God, are able to keep their relationship with Jesus Christ primary, that all of those difficulties... All of those hardships, all of the arguments, all of the disagreements always take a second place to the strength that Jesus Christ provides in marriage. So to summarize this, the power of love's devotion 
is stronger than the pain of love's defeats because that power comes from God. Secondly, a love that is pleasing gives freely. You don't, I don't give because you give to me. I give because I choose to. It's a sacrificial, unconditional love. And finally, words can't replace will, the decision, when commitment is tested. Emotions, they'll go the first week. But the will, that stays. Not long ago, Kathy and I went to a, a wedding together and we were both struck. I remember uh, her kind of going, hmm, like that. And I was thinking the same thing in my mind at the, at the very moment that we heard the groom give his vows. It was like he was reading a grocery list. He said, uh, it's just so flippantly, I take you to be my love for wife. They're having a hold from this day forward. For better or for worse, rich for poor. I mean, you could tell the guy was just having fun with the ceremony and what he was saying, at least in that moment, did not appeal, appear very sincere. What we have vowed before God and men, Jesus said in the New Testament, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. If God wants to separate it, that's fine. He'll take one of you home. But otherwise... He says, God has put together, let no man separate. Now, I know that many of you are divorced and many of you have a, uh, perhaps feel like I'm stepping on you today and it's not my intent. In order to emphasize for those folks who are married, you've got to emphasize how important it is. And you yourself know the, the wrong of the past. But I'm not talking today about your past. I'm talking about your future. And if God in His grace so desires to give you another opportunity for marriage, let it be your firm will, as you who are married, that you will not separate what God has joined together, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we need this reminder today because we live right where this book speaks. We struggle in the wilderness. We struggle with that seal over our heart for only our mate. We struggle with faithfulness. We struggle like Solomon did in waffling. And I know, Lord, that there are many who are here today for one reason or another have not experienced what you desired for them in their marriage. But I pray, Father, that you might give them clear understanding of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, that there is no unforgivable sin and that you can start over. And I pray, Lord, for the marriages represented here today and the marriages that will be. That come hell or high water, there will be no separation. But that they, like myself, by your grace, would stick with it when it gets hard. Thank you, Lord, that you provide the strength to do what you command, and we are not left to our own devices by which we would surely fail. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.